Hey, and welcome to this podcast by Chestnut Mountain Church, located in Flowery Branch, Georgia, where our mission is to saturate the world by making disciples. We invite you to check out our website at chestnutmountain.org and follow us on social on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at chestnutmtn underscore to learn more about who we are. There are also video episodes located on our YouTube channel, along with other content not on this podcast. This episode features a sermon replay from Sunday's message. Let's take a listen. We're going to go ahead and jump into Nehemiah chapter 9. I'm excited about today. And, And just to reiterate what we talked about last week, I love sermons like last Sunday that Jason shared with us. In that there's that one takeaway that you can cling to, that you can hold on to. And I could probably have you raise your hand and many of you would say, it ain't about the wall. It ain't about the wall. Because we were able to hold on to that. We were able to reminisce on that and put that in our pocket for the entire week. And so as we got home last Sunday, we began to talk and my family was talking about how good the message was last week and what we were talking about. And I won't name any names, but my oldest son, He was so excited because he could interject into our conversation because normally he can't. And so when you hear these methods that are used for this one liner that we can remember, my oldest son celebrated that because he goes, I know what it's about. It ain't about the wall. And I'm like, and I was excited as a dad. I was like, man, he paid attention today. But through further discussion, we realized that that's all the 15-year-old boy retained. Because I said, hey, man, did you not hear? Well, no, because he told me all I needed to know was that it ain't about the wall. And so from that point forward, I guess he just turned the switch off. Like it was over. But Jason, don't feel bad because I can guarantee you that when we get in the car today, he will not remember one line from anything I say. So mission accomplished. You did great last week. He remembered the one thing. You know, but for today, we are, we're going to take and use the same approach that Jason used last week when we look at Nehemiah chapter 9. And what I want you to write down and what I want you to think about this morning is that if you walked in feeling discouraged because of sin in your life, because of failures in your life, My prayer has been for you this week that you leave encouraged. Because here's what I want you to write down. Here's the tagline. Here's the whatever the word, what did you say last week? Hypothesis. Yeah, that's what Jason said last week. But here would be the thesis of today. That God's faithfulness always trumps our failures. God's faithfulness always trumps our failures. And last week, as as we saw at the very end of chapter eight, Jason made mention of, some of your Bibles will read it differently, it's either the Feast of the Tabernacle or the Festival of Booths. And so what the end of chapter eight was referencing was this festival or this feast that they would celebrate, they would come together once a year. 
The children of Israel would gather together once a year to celebrate this. And sometimes at the end of September through the middle of October is when this event would take place. But it always fell on the heels of the fall harvest season. That is when they would always celebrate. But what they would do, what this celebration looked like is they would gather together materials and supplies to build temporary shelters to build like tents, to build huts, to build lean-tos. And for that one week period, for six days straight, they would leave their homes, they would leave their residence and live inside these temporary shelters, these temporary tents. And I can't help but to think about the old, the Methodist camp meetings that you probably all have gone to at some point. They all call these things tents where they leave their home and for that one week they gather together and celebrate. And that's exactly what the children of Israel were doing was reminding themselves that God's faithfulness always trumps their failures. Because the fact that they would live inside these shelters or these temporary homes for that one week period reminded them that while they were in the wilderness for 40 years, that God always provided shelter. He always provided protection. He always provided provision. And that's what they would celebrate in that one week period. But what I want to make sure that we understand is that just like you heard last week, that that this festival not only focused on what God had done in the past, but it was the foreshadowing of what was to come through the Messiah. That Jesus Christ would be the provider of shelter, provision, encouragement, and ultimately salvation. It was all pointing to what was gonna take place in the New Testament with the coming of Christ. And so as you heard last week, everything that we read about in Scripture It all points to Jesus Christ, every bit of it, from cover to cover. And so during this celebration, they would basically gather together for a lot of what you and I would call church services throughout the week. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at chapter 9. And whether you know this or not, each and every single week, our, our worship team, the production team, myself, We don't just show up on Sunday morning and say, ah, here's what we're going to do. Like they do meet throughout the week. They put together a service flow. They put together the the chain of events, if you would, that take place on a Sunday morning. Now, if you've been here for any amount of time, you've realized there's a lot of Sundays that we will take that and throw it in the trash. Then we go as the Holy Spirit leads us and we'll never get away from that. But what you're going to see in chapter nine To make it as simple as I know how is what you're going to see in these first five verses is basically a service flow of what their church services would look like in this Feast of the Tabernacle or this Festival of Booths. And so what I want to do today is read these first five verses, and then we're just going to walk through them, and we are going to make it all the way through chapter nine today, okay? So we got a lot of ground to cover, so just fasten your seatbelts and let's go. So Nehemiah chapter nine, starting in verse one. On the 24th, man, I can read this. Do y'all know how revolutionary this is? This is great. See, the last time I preached, like I read the same line like three times. I don't even know if y'all picked up on that, but like I can't, I'm like, dude, this is terrible. Anyway, on the 24th day of this month, the Israelites assembled. They were fasting, wearing sackcloth, And they had put dust on their heads. Verse two, 
Those of Israelite descent separated themselves from all foreigners and they stood and they confessed their sin and the iniquities of their ancestors. While they stood in their places, that's very important. We're gonna come back to that. But while they stood in their places, they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a fourth of the day. And they spent another fourth of the day in confession and worship of the Lord their God. And then it goes into listing some of the Levites. I'm gonna do like everybody else. We're not gonna butcher those names. So we're just gonna keep reading. But the Levites, they had built this platform. And the Bible says at the end of verse four that they would stand and they cried out loudly to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, there's all the names again, said, stand up. That's important. We'll come back to that. Because if you remember It said that they were standing up while they were reading the word of God, and then just a verse and a half later, they're being told to stood up. Now, we're gonna bring attention to that in a little while. But it says there, stand up. Blessed be the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessings and praise. And so what we see here in verse three, verse three is what our worship team would, this would be just a little insight on planning center. This is the order of events. This is what the service flow would look like for the day. And we see that in verse three, you get the snapshot that they would read the word, they would confess their sin, and then they would worship. They would read the word, they would confess their sins, and they would worship. Now, as I read that, that sounds like a pretty easy plan, but as I begin to pray and think through these three bullet points, I thought, but yeah, there's a lot in there. There's a lot that's gotta be behind the scenes that's taking place in reading the word, confessing your sin, and having that result into worship. And so what we're gonna do today is we're gonna peel back the layers of all three of these things to better help us understand what they would do in their quote unquote, services. And so here's what I want you to write down too. Here is kind of the expanded version of what the morning or what the day would look like. They would read the word. And then as a result of reading the word, it would produce conviction. Conviction would then produce confession. Confession would then produce humility and humility would then produce praise and worship. Let me say that one more time, because this is all in here, and you're gonna see that as we read chapter nine. But they would read the word of God, and as a result of reading the word of God, they would become convicted. Then it would go from conviction to confession. The confession would produce humility, and then humility would produce the praise or the worship. And so what I want us to make sure that we understand that any time we read and learn the word of God, it should lead to conviction. Every time we open the word of God, it should lead to conviction. And then once we're convicted, then the next thing that we have to take responsibility for is to confess that sin before a holy and a righteous God. Because you see, when conviction happens, it produces confession, but when we confess, 
what we are doing in that confession is we are standing in agreement with what the word of God says. When we confess our sins, it means, God, okay, I've crossed the line and I completely agree with what your word is teaching. So that word confession, we're confessing where we have fallen short. We're confessing that word that we all know as the word sin. Now, I know this seems like a very elementary lesson, but we have to understand the elementary principle that is involved with confession and first understanding what sin is. You see, I, this word sin, I don't wanna say I love this word sin, but I can relate to this word sin, which I think we all can. But sin, and I've shared this before, it's an original term that was used in archery. Shooting a bow and arrow. I was thinking about this as me and my kids were in the backyard last night shooting our bow and arrows, getting ready for the upcoming deer season. Praise God. But what you have to realize is that this word sin, all it means is that when an archer misses what they're aiming for, that they miss the target that they're aiming to hit. And so as a child of God, I think we can all agree that our aim should be to live in accordance with the commandments of what God's word teaches. But when we confess our sin, when we confess that we've missed the mark, we're standing in agreement with what the word of God says, that the word of God has convicted us because we've taken aim and we've missed it. But then when we confess it, we're standing in agreement that we fully believe what it says. And so that's the whole idea behind this confession. And when we confess this sin, we're saying, God, I am sorry that I missed the mark. God, I'm sorry that I've missed what I was aiming for. Because as a child of God, there should be a desire in all of us to live a life of holiness and righteousness. If there's not the desire to live under the authority of God's word, then you probably need to question if you're truly a follower of Christ. Is there a desire to submit to the authority of what this word says? And when the word convicts us that we've stepped outside of that or that we've come in opposition to what God's word says, we become convicted, producing the confession, saying, God, I agree that I missed the mark. But before you beat yourself up too bad, remember what the book of Romans says in chapter three, verse 23, for all have sinned. All have missed the mark and fallen short of God's glory. You know who that leaves out, right? Nobody. That's all of us. We've all missed the mark. And so we see that, that reading the word produces that conviction producing the confession. But here's what I want to share with you, the good news of this confession. The good news of agreeing with what the word of God says. Look on the screen, you'll see it there in 1 John chapter, nine, chapter one, verses nine and 10. If we confess our what? Sin. If we confess when we miss the mark, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not 
in us. God's faithfulness always trumps our failures. God's faithfulness always trumps our failures. Now, I wanna, I wanna pause here for just a minute because what I wanna make you aware of is that when we confess those sins before God, when we confess it, when we agree with him, what this does is this restores the closeness to him. Because what you have to realize is that there's gonna be times in our life when there's failure to confess. When there's failure to acknowledge what we've done, we get caught up in the rat race of life and we fail to confess this. But what I want you to understand is failure doesn't, failure to confess doesn't forfeit the relationship. Make sure you understand that failure to confess your sin as a child of God doesn't forfeit the relationship, but it hinders it. It hinders it because there's, there's sin between a God who loves you and a God who you've opposed. I think about marriage. I think about my relationship with my wife. And Chelsea, first thing, you see her grab her phone real quick? <laughs> she went, praise God, please don't let it be mine. If you missed that one, you can go back and listen to it later. But I think about my marriage with my wife. Believe it or not, there are times that we come against one another. I know that sounds shocking. There's times that we disagree. There's times I wrong her. There's times she wrongs me. However, when we oppose one another, it never means that we're not married. But it does mean that our relationship, that our marriage is hindered because we've opposed one another. But then the beauty of forgiveness is when she finally gets her heart right and she apologizes and she confesses, then man, the closeness is restored. But I have to pray that God make it clear to her because she got to confess. Is that right, Chels? Okay. But when we oppose one another, it never means we're not married. It never means that we're not together, but it does mean that there's things between us. And that's exactly the relationship we have with the Lord. Just because you sin, just because you fall short, just because you fail to confess that, it never means that you become not a child of God. You are still a child of God, saved by grace through faith as a result of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That's our hope that we can hold on to. That a failure to confess this doesn't forfeit the relationship, but it hinders it. But church, here's what I want you to be aware of. That very thought, that very idea that sin hinders our relationship with a God who loves us is the very reason that we at Chestnut Mountain Church will never step outside of teaching the word of God. Because the word of God is what convicts and what leads to our confession. And when we confess, guess what happens? The closeness is restored. My heart's desire is that every week you leave here as a result of conviction and your confession, leaving closer with God than when you came in. 
but I don't have the ability to do that. But the authority of God's word does. Now look, when we stay in the word of God, Jason mentioned it last week, that it's the light that lights up the darkness. It shines light on our failures. It shines light on the sin in our life. And I think we can all stand in agreement that there's a lot of times that hurts. When we realize that we've offended God, when we realize that we've opposed God, when we realize there's things in our life that could potentially hurt the heart of God, it becomes burdensome, it becomes heavy. There may be even times in your life when the spirit or the reading of God's word convicts you and honestly, it offends you. And you begin to make excuses for your sin. Let it be stated and put on record. Listen to me. I will never apologize if the word of God offends you. I will never apologize if the scripture from God's word offends you. You know what I'm gonna do instead? I'm gonna praise him for it. I pray the word of God offends you. I pray the word of God convicts you because as a result of your conviction, you confess and confession brings the closeness. And so look, as we move forward, if there's ever something we read from the word of God, don't bother sending an email. Don't bother sending a text message because I'm gonna say, hey, I love you, but we're gonna keep preaching the truth even when it hurts, even if it convicts. But I want us to keep moving because I know you're thinking, man, he's already 15 minutes in and he's only through verse like two. I promise we're gonna make it. The thing I wanted to bring to attention is in these first five verses, we notice that after confession or during confession, is when this worship was produced or when worship began to happen. You know, I found it very interesting in verse three as I brought attention to as we read it, that it said while they stood in their places, they were standing to read God's word, which is exactly what Jason talked about last week. They would stand in reverence to reading of God's word, but just about a verse and a half later, they're being instructed to stand up. So somewhere in a verse and a half, they've gone from the posture of standing up to reading the word of God to somehow, some way, now I'm assuming they're all sitting down, they're all laying down. The Bible doesn't say, so we can only assume. But after I began to study and I began to read, I was like, God, what is this about? Why were they standing? And now all of a sudden they're having to be told to stand up again. You see, I believe with everything in me, what this alludes to is that when the word of God was read, they became convicted. And as they began to confess, they were genuinely broken over their sin. They genuinely felt unworthy. 
to be in the presence of a holy and a righteous God as a result to the sin in their life. Many scholars say that they were ashamed to show their face because of the result of conviction. And then when they begin to confess, they knew they had opposed the father who loves them. And they were genuinely broken. Paul writes about this in 2 Corinthians. Godly sorrow brings forth true repentance. And I believe that from verse three to verse five, I believe that they were walking through godly sorrow. I believe they were genuinely broken over their sin and the acknowledgement and the confession that they had opposed and offended the Holy Scripture of God. Here's the question I would ask you. When is the last time you have been genuinely broken over your sin? When is the last time we have been humbled before a holy and a righteous God that we were honestly ashamed to show our face because we had fallen so short? And I believe that's what's happening in the lives of the children of Israel. The word of God's been read. They have fallen under conviction and they've begun to confess and they've realized they've fallen short. But you know, this is so opposite of what our world is teaching us. Culture today is teaching us that it's courageous to stand for the things that offend God's word. That we're being told that you're the bravest person I've ever seen because you have the courage to stand against what the word of God says. We're being told that that's brave and that that's courageous to stand against what the truth of God's word says, what the standard that he has set. That we're patted on the back because we're standing strong. Can I tell you that the Bible warns to those who stand up against the authority of the word of God. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 17 through 19. The highway of the upright avoids evil. The one who guards his way protects his life. Listen to verse 18. Pride comes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall. It's better to be lowly of spirit with humble than to divide plunder with the proud. But you know what? Our hearts should break for those who stand courageously against the word of God. And we're gonna share some examples of Jesus' heart broke for those people that stood in opposition to what God was attempting to do. But you see, conviction by all means shouldn't make us proud. Conviction should humble us. And when we're convicted and we become humbled and we confess, we realize that God loves us enough to make us aware of our sin. Did you hear me? God loves you enough to offend you. 
God loves you enough to convict you because his desire is that once you're convicted, you will confess and the closeness is restored. That's how much the father loves you. When is the last time we've celebrated conviction? And I know that kind of sounds weird, but I believe that in a humbled place, in a place of humility, we can celebrate conviction because we realize, wow, the Father loves me that much that he wants to make me aware of what's standing between me and him. And as a result, then we begin to praise. Then we begin to worship because we can say, thank you, God, that you love me enough to make me aware. And God, you have a desire for you and I to be close. I don't know about you, but that's very, very humbling. But the fact is, is God's faithfulness always trumps our failure. And now from verse six, all the way through the remaining part of chapter nine, you basically see their worship through prayer and praise. And so very quickly, they worship God by acknowledging who he is and what he's done. Just the Cliff Notes version in verse six, we see that they acknowledge that he's creator. Verse seven through 10, they celebrate that he's the redeemer. Verses 11 through 13, they celebrate that he's the protector. Verse 14 talks about him being their rest. And verse 15, they celebrate the fact that he's the provider. But I believe that this continued to humble them more as they acknowledged all that God had done because they were reminded that who he is and what he had done was in spite of what they had done. That God never changed. God was always those things. And I want us to take just a couple of seconds here to look what they've done. Look what they begin to confess in chapter nine. In verses 16 and 17, it says they, they acted arrogantly and they were stiff-necked. Now, many of you may not fully understand what stiff-necked is, but stiff-necked is, is literally being stubborn. It's when an ox would refuse direction from the farmer. It's when the farmer would try to, to direct the path or change the course that the ox was on, and the ox would literally stiffen his neck and not submit to the authority of the lordship of the farmer that was trying to direct him. And so you're gonna hear that word stiff-necked over and over and over again all through the Old Testament, hearing where these Israelites were stiff-necked. But in verse 18, they even created and worshiped a false god. They created the golden calf. Idolatry snuck its way in. Verse 26, it goes on to talk about that they were disobedient and they rebelled against you. But then they take it a step further in verse 26, and it says that they, they would fling the law behind their back. What this signifies is they were taking the instruction and the commands of God and saying, ah, we don't value it anymore. It's not important. We're gonna do our own thing. And I believe they were saying things like the word of God's not relevant anymore. Does that sound familiar? 
And so what they begin to do is reject the teaching and the commandments of a holy and a righteous father who loves them. So they flung the law over their back. So we constantly see the children of God rejecting what the father was doing, rejecting what the father was attempting to do. And just for a side note, you do know that God has the power and the ability to make them do exactly what he wants them to do, right? He could have made them and forced them to follow his law, to follow his commandment, but God never forced them to follow his instruction. His desire for a child of God is for us to understand the love that the Father has for us, that we willingly submit to his commandments, that we willingly submit, not because we have to, but because we understand that a God loves us and his commandments are put in place to protect us and to provide guidance for us. But God wants us to do that out of a desire of our own heart to follow and to submit to him. He will never make you submit to his commandments. He will never make you follow those. And so we read over and over in the Old Testament that he gave them over to their desires. He let them do what they wanted to do. But every time we read about the children of Israel doing what they wanted to do, what did it always lead to? Their failure. It always led to their failure. But praise be unto God that God's faithfulness always trumps our failures. And if there's one section of this passage that I could, that I could read today, it would be in chapter nine, verses 27 through 31. This pretty much sums up the entire journey of the children of Israel, if you would. But as we read it, we're gonna read it slowly, and I want you, I want you to see if you can relate with how they're responding. But more importantly, when you connect with what they're doing, I want you to look at what God does. And I want you to be reminded of what God has done in your life. Starting in verse 27, so you, he's referencing, so God handed them over to their enemies who oppressed them. In their time of distress, they cried out to you and you heard from heaven and in your abundant compassion, you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the power of their enemies. But as soon as they had relief, they again did what was evil in your sight. So you abandoned them to the power of their enemies who dominated them. And when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven and you rescued them many times in your compassion. Verse 29, you warned them to turn back to your law but they acted arrogantly and they would not obey your commands. They sinned against your ordinances, which a person will live by if he does them. They stubbornly resisted. They stiffened their necks and they would not obey. You were patient with them for many years. 
You know, we could stop right there. How many of you are thankful that God was patient with you for many years? You were patient with them for many years and your spirit warned them through your prophets, but they would not listen. Therefore, you handed them over to the surrounding peoples, but listen to verse 31. However, in your abundant compassion, you did not destroy them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and a compassionate God. That's the gospel in the nutshell. That no matter our sin, no matter how many times we've missed the mark, no matter how many times we've aimed to live a holy and a righteous life, because of our flesh, we are in, we, we, there's no possible way that we can live to that standard. But God in his grace and his compassion and his heart for you, his heart for me, knew we couldn't do it. So he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to provide the way because he loves us. He's compassionate for us. And he says, I know they can't do it, but I'm going to allow my son to do it for them. And he never stopped stops pursuing us. And he did that all the way to the cross. He did that all the way to the cross. But I love what they acknowledge in verse 33. You are righteous concerning all that has happened to us. Listen to this. Because you have acted faithfully while we straightened up, you acted faithfully while we fixed all of our problems. You acted faithfully when we kicked those bad habits. No, it says you acted faithfully while we have acted wickedly. That makes no sense to you and I. That a God would love us in spite of our wicked ways that he would continue to pursue us in spite of our wicked ways. But again, God's faithfulness always trumps our failures. God's faithfulness always trumps our failures. And he is in constant pursuit to make sure we know that. You know, I love the stories in the Old Testament that that point to the coming of Christ, that, that point to this pursuit that he has for you and he has for me. We hear the story of Hosea and Gomer. I mean, he was told to go marry a prostitute. Hello, yellow flag number one. But not only that, as he was told, when you marry her, she's gonna keep going back to the same old things she used to do. So I don't know about you, I'm Jose. Wiping my hands with that one. But God told her, told him, that each time she does it, go buy her back. You be faithful even when she's wicked. Do you understand that's exactly what took place on the cross? He was faithful even when we were wicked. While we were sinners, Christ died. While we were yet sinners, Christ died. God's faithfulness always trumps our failures. We look at the picture of the cross. Jesus is hanging on the cross to take away the sins of the world 
while men at his feet are mocking him, making fun of him, taunting him, tempting him to come off the cross. But you know what the first words out of Jesus's mouth on the cross was? While they were acting wickedly, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. If I'm on the cross, I'm praying, God, squish them. God, strike them dead. But that's my flesh. But God in his love for us, even when the people at the foot of the cross acted wickedly, the savior of the world pleaded, God, forgive them. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So, you know, I don't, I don't know what sin that you're convicted of right now in this moment, because the truth of the matter is, is that any time the word of God is opened, you're gonna be convicted. But the question I've got to ask you today, will your conviction lead to confession? But I want to remind you of what the word of God says in that promise. If we confess, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So listen to me. I don't know what you've done today. Don't want to know but you can't out sin God's forgiveness. You can't out sin God's love. You can't outrun his grace. And today my prayer is, is that you've become convicted but that it leads to confession and when, when you realize that no matter what you've done, that when you confess that to a holy and a righteous God, he pushes reset. You are wiped clean. Not because of anything you've done, but because of what the Savior did on the cross. And for you and I, what that ought to do is take us to a posture of humility because we realize, God, I'm not worthy because I've done nothing to earn your forgiveness. But your son paid the price that was mine. And church, that's what transforms our worship. When we hear the word of God read, we become convicted. We confess that sin. The humility is produced. And that humility leads to worship. And so I don't know who needs to hear the latter part of Verse 17 today, because the children of Israel in 17, they're in the process confessing everything. But midway through 17, it says that they just get a slap upside the head and they stop. And it says, but you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. And you did not abandon them. 
If you're here this morning and the Holy Spirit of God, the reading of God's word is convicting you, you need to be reminded today he's not abandoned you. The reason you feel uncomfortable, the reason that sin is not comfortable is because the Spirit of God wants you to have closeness with the Father. So the reason that he's revealing you that to you is so that you can confess and the closeness can be restored. And then when the worship is produced, it leads it to commitment. And that's what you see in some latter chapters of Nehemiah. Is that that worship is a symbol of commitment. That God, I'm gonna do whatever it is you lead me to do. Because God, I know you love me enough to convict me. When's the last time you've realized that God loves you enough to convict you? That's very humbling. And so this morning in response, I wonder who's got some confessing to do. I believe it's all of us. I believe it's all of us. But when we confess, the closeness is restored. We're placed in a posture of humility and worship changes because we realize there's no sin too great because God's faithfulness always trumps our failures. But maybe today you can say, well, Brian, I, I've never fully trusted in that plan. I've never fully trusted in that Jesus did that for me. If God's revealed that to you today, don't leave here without placing your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You say, well, it can't be that simple. <laughs> it is. It is. We as adults, we complicate everything. You realize that, don't you? There's a reason that the Bible talks about childlike faith. Be okay with not having to understand it all. That's what faith's all about. So this morning, do we need to confess? Church, I can promise you, if we begin to be a church who constantly confesses as the word of God convicts, our worship changes. Our worship changes. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you made a decision or if you have any questions about salvation or anything about this Christian journey, one of our pastors would love to connect with you. So to connect and find out what your next steps are, go to our website at chestnutmountain.org slash next steps, and there will be a form for you to fill out so one of our pastors can connect with you. We also want you to do three things right now. Number one, leave a review on this podcast. Tell us what you think. 
and also a review allows us to reach even more people. Number two, subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already so you don't miss an episode during the week. And number three, we want you to go check out our Chestnut Mountain Church YouTube channel. So maybe there's some visuals in this episode that you couldn't see but wanted to see. And that's why we have video versions of these episodes along with other content not featured on this podcast right now on our YouTube channel. Lastly, we invite you to join us live for worship on Sunday mornings in person at 9 o'clock or 1045 a.m. Eastern Standard Time or online at 1045 as well. Learn more about us on our website at chestnutmountain.org. And don't forget to follow us on social at chestnutmtn underscore for more encouragement and to see all what God is doing in and through CMC. We love you, we're praying for you, and we'll see you next time.